Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Richard Quest, sitting in for Julia Chastney all this week. You are most welcome. Here's what you need to know on this Tuesday morning out of New York. Brazil ban as the US brings forward its travel ban on, against travelers from that country, not applying, of course, to US citizens. Brazilians are catching the virus in their tens of thousands. Back in business, some floor trading does resume today on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. The governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, will virtually ring, or ring virtually, the opening bell. And stocks are set to surge. Once again, it's the hope of a vaccine that's pushing the markets higher in New York. It is Tuesday, and this is First Move. Welcome. It is First Move. It is Tuesday. And the way the markets in New York are set to open after a long holiday weekend, the Memorial Day weekend, is with a very strong bounce. Look at the futures, up two and a third percent. 25,000, once again, well and truly within grasp. Same for the Nasdaq. That's up strongly. And the S&P, all the futures markets are up. And it's a continuation of last week's gains. The optimism the reopenings will proceed successfully and fresh hope for a vaccine. The Dow highly likely to cross 25,000. Europe, let's go to Europe, across the Atlantic. The UK was back in action after its bank holiday. Travel stocks uh, were gaining. You're, the UK is seeing the, no, it's not the best. Paris is up higher than that. Uh, reports say Germany could lift travel restrictions for uh, its citizens next month. And in Asia, strong gains with the Nikkei up 2.5%, Japan lifted its state of emergency for the entire country. And that's why I think we're seeing Japan almost the best of the day. But the Australia market is up the best part of 3%. And so to Latin America, the Bovespa in Brazil up 4%. The travel ban is set, US travel ban is to take effect tonight. Nick Payton Walsh will be live for us in Sao Paulo in just a moment or two. And our old friend, Oil. Always worth catching up with how oil is doing. Demand's improving. New science countries are cutting production as promised. Take those two things together, and that's why we're seeing a gain of nearly 4% in oil. To the drivers, Christine Romans is with me. Two factors for the U.S. markets. Uh, and I, 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 Christine, I can't gauge which I think is the stronger pull or push at the moment. Firstly, the prospect of a vaccine, but we've had that yes. a million times. But secondly, the idea that the reopening is going better than expected, even allowing for an uptick in cases in certain places. Well, hello, my friend. It's so nice to see you. And yes, I mean, looking at an S&P 500 near 3,000, a Dow that could cross 25,000 again today, and a Nasdaq that is up on the year, it looks like investors are pricing for perfection in terms of reopening of the economy and vaccine progress. 
on that reopening, I think overnight in Asia, that really, really set the tone here. Japan, UK opening its retail sector. These were things that kind of fed into last week's hopefulness in the United States about a reopening here. And then new progress on another human trial for uh, for another vaccine. That is also sparking some optimism this morning. But we have seen that, that vaccine optimism kind of ebb and flow before. Last week, Moderna had a very big uh, Monday and then kind of scaled back a little bit in the in the days that followed on concerns that, well, look, this is going to be a long road. I would put a little bit of caution in here as well for investors because, look, you know, the stock market is incredibly, stocks here in the U.S. are incredibly expensive. I mean, earnings are, uh, and you've got stocks here that have been moving higher. They're up to March highs at the moment, and we still don't have testing, tracing, treatment, and a vaccine. So there, there is risk in all of this still. Right, but... Sorry, the, the proverbial, but the there seems to be an understanding that providing the cases don't become out of hand and out of control, then the U.S. is prepared to allow a drift higher within the confines of of not overwhelming medical and hospital supplies. What's really interesting to me is that um, we don't know sort of what the plan is for reopening yet, right? I mean, it's been left to the states, and different states have different sort of protocols here. So I, I do think there still is a lot of risk. We don't know. The WHO is also warning there could be the second peak. We're in the first wave of the virus, and we could see a second peak in that first wave. So there is still a lot of caution from the scientists. But with the markets, you're right. What the markets are saying is that they can tolerate a number that's drifting higher if you have a healthcare system. That can uh, that can handle it, and you start to get some robust testing and tracing, and potentially therapeutics. You know, we're not there yet on any of that, which is why I that's where my caution comes from in looking at the markets right here. But clearly, markets are looking well beyond openings to a successful restarting of the American economy. Those Fang stocks, you know, that tech core of these deep-pocketed companies that are up 25, 35, 45, some 50% this year. I mean, that's a different engine of the economy that's doing very well, even as Main Street is crumbling here. Just a lot of headline risk, I would say, both for the economic data we're going to be getting and also the healthcare news we're going to be getting. But at least for this morning, you're seeing optimism in the United States about the direction of all of this. Christine Romans in New York. It is good to see you. Thank you. Now, the New York Stock Exchange is to reopen its floor in just about half an hour from now. It's a limited reopening, restricted to certain floor brokers. Um, and it will be the first time since March that the floor has been in session. There won't be anything like the usual energy. There'll be masks and full social distancing. Um, we'll be talking in, to, to the vice chairman of the exchange in just a moment. Alison Kosick is with me um, on Wall Street. So why has the exchange done this in this way? Do you know, um, this, the CEO of the NYSC, Stacey Cunningham, uh, had released a, uh, a, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago and saying, um, you know, there is a way to do this and we are seeing how uh, the NYAC is going to do it in just about a half hour from now. Uh, it is using, um, you know, social distancing measures. It's also looking at legal measures as well. Let me first go over those safety measures with you, Richard, because these are social distancing uh, to the nth degree. Uh, any traders that come to work here today have to have agreed to have not taken 
public transportation. Once they arrive at the front door here, their temperatures will be checked. Of course, they will be wearing face masks as well. Once on the floor, they have to remain six feet apart. Social distancing will be enforced. If, it, if uh, traders do not stay, stay six feet apart, they will be removed from the floor. There was to be no eating on the floor of the stock exchange, which is usually what we see. Instead, they have to actually make appointments to eat in the cafeteria, of course, properly social distance. Also along the floor, there is plexiglass or plastic uh, separating some of the traders to try to help them keep their uh, distance as well. And there is a ban on any handshaking as well or any physical contact. Now about that legal measure, anyone who walks into the building here at the New York Stock Exchange has to sign a liability waiver, basically saying, I give up my rights to uh, to sue the NYSE if I get sick uh, inside this building. Richard? Okay, so, uh, but Alison, it begs the question, will the floor ever really get back to where it was? I mean, you know, without the proviso of until we have a vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and that's the question we can ask about the broader economy, right? Will we get back to what it was, and I think it all depends on whether or not we have a vaccine, and that, in fact, will, uh, you know, instill that confidence in people to get close to each other, to have that open outcry on the floor, which, by the way, is not going to be happening in this phase one of reopening at the New York Stock Exchange. Richard. Alison Kartik, thank you. Alison's outside the exchange. John Tuttley, sure. vice chair of the New York Stock Exchange will join me in a little while as we wait for the opening bell. We'll also show you just how the market has risen since then. When the market closed, uh, well, you'll, you'll hear all the numbers uh, when we talk to John Tuttle in just a moment or two. LATAM Airlines is filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the United States. The CEO is blaming the pandemic. Now, LATAM is, the, is Latin America's largest airline. It's actually a sort of LATAM Chile, LATAM Ecuador, LATAM and so forth. All sort of, uh, subsidiaries of the, the umbrella LATAM group. The bankruptcy protection is in the US so that it can restructure, whilst of course staying fully in business, Columbia's Avianca did the same thing earlier this month. Claire Sebastian is with me. So now we have the two largest groups of airlines in Latin America, Avianca and Latam, fierce, fierce rivals both, and both now going into Chapter 11. Yeah, Richard, I think this is a sign of the, the pressure that they've been under. LATAM has had to cut passenger uh, traffic, well, cut their passenger services by 95%. They say that they're going to try to restart in, in June, but they're going to keep it at lower costs. They're going to have more flexibility for passengers, more, of course, enhanced cleaning and sanitation measures and things like that. All of that costs money, plus add to that the fact that they have not had access to state aid yet. They said in their announcement of this bankruptcy filing that they are in talks with various governments, Brazil, Chile, Peru, uh, among others, uh, to try to get state aid. They also have debtor in possession financing from a number of shareholders, including Qatar Airways, not notably from Delta Airlines, which owns 20% uh, of LATAM. Clearly, they are under their own uh, amount of stresses. But this is a situation that they have been brought to. The CEO did uh, make, was it pains to, to make clear that Chapter 11 is not a liquidation. They do hope to continue in business. He hopes this will pave the path forward to, to an airline that can survive in the post 
COVID era, which he acknowledged, of course, will be very different from the pre-COVID era, but they are going to try to restructure, bring their debt down uh, and keep going. It does raise the question why these airlines particularly felt the need to go into Chapter 11. I mean, clearly, I suppose one problem is that they are an amalgam of different airlines in different countries and their existing balance sheets were stressed. But we haven't yet, I mean, in the US we've seen one or two minor, Mm. but we haven't seen any of the majors anywhere else having to go in, except, I I, I tell a lie, except, of course, in Australia, where Virgin Australia did. Mm. Well, Richard, I think state aid does play a big role in this. You know, you see the likes of of Lufthansa getting that huge uh, cash injection from the German government. The U.S. airlines uh, have shared 25 billion uh, from the government here. And and look, that is in itself controversial. Some believe that Chapter 11 is is a sort of a a more ethical path for these airlines to take, that they should restructure on their own. And then if they still need to, they should seek state aid after that. And we see that, that controversy in play today. Ryanair saying, uh, that it will now appeal the, the, the state bailout of Lufthansa uh, in Europe, calling it illegal that the CEO, Michael O'Leary, who, as you know, has been very vocal in his opposition uh, to state handouts to airlines, uh, saying Lufthansa is addicted to state aid. So, so it's very controversial how these airlines should manage this and how much help they should get in doing that. Thank you very much. Claire Sebastian with the airlines, and we'll watch that closely. Of course, Emmanuel Macron is pledging to support the auto industry. You remember, of course, France has already supported Air France KLM to the tune of 8 billion euros. Now it's the auto industry's turn. Cyril Vanier is in Paris. How much and to whom? Well, we're about to get the announcement in about an hour or so, Richard. So as far as numbers, we don't yet know them. We know there's one big number floating out there, and that concerns the ailing French carmaker Renault, which is really in the eye of this particular storm. The French economy minister made no bones about it, saying they may not survive this crisis. So the number is $5 billion. Renault has cobbled together a €5 billion euro loan, But the French government, being the uh, majority shareholder along with Japan's Nissan of Renault, still needs to sign off on this loan. And uh, as of a few minutes ago, officially, they had not done so. The French government wants to know what Renault's plan is going forward, because Renault already delivered its worst year in a decade. That was in 2019, was extremely vulnerable going into this crisis. And of course, all their plants and dealerships in France uh, were forced to shut mid-March. So the French government does not want to see its its economic champion fail, but they also don't want to keep pumping money in endlessly if Renault doesn't have a plan going forward. We're going to be hearing more about that plan from Renault later this week. So Vanier, who is in Paris, and will report on the details once they become clear. Now, in this moment, Wall Street, the New York Stock Exchange reopens. Don't shake hands. Don't take public transport and eat in the cafeteria. There are some of the more basic uh, restrictions. The traders are returning to the floor under new rules. We're live at the open. I'm feeling the chill. China's warning against the new Cold War with mounting U.S. tensions. Former U.S. ambassador to China joins me after the break. (laughs) 
heard the stories making news around the world this morning. This is First Move. Uh, Richard Press in for Julia Chatterley. The U.S. ban on non-Americans entering the country if they've been to Brazil in the past two weeks comes into force in just a few hours. Brazil's the second highest number of confirmed infections in the world, according to Johns Hopkins. At least 375,000 people have had it. Nick Payton Walsh is in Sao Paulo. How... How is the country, I mean, the stock market in Brazil is somewhat extraordinary, up 4% today. Um, and yet there must be a feeling that this is a crisis that is bordering out of control. Look, I think there's no doubt in the minds of many Brazilians that there is something bad ahead. I think anyone who's been watching at the science, listening to medical professionals, and frankly listening to their local governors here in Sao Paulo, or in Rio, or in the town of Manaus in the middle of the Amazon, one of the worst hits in the country, if not the world, know that this is going to be very bad, and the peak is one to two weeks away. The numbers, though, don't tell the full story, certainly, uh, because testing isn't like it is in the United States, the only country in the world that has more cases than Brazil at at the moment so there may not be the full figure the point is though there is possibly room somehow in all of this for misplaced optimism because of the message coming out of Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro who has been very much pro-economy calling this a little flu initially going on to perhaps suggest a fight against it he used the word is a war um, but I think really, if you're looking for the possibility that the lockdown isn't going to be that restrictive towards the economy, all you have to do is look at a federal government here, which at one point, in fact, uh, seemed to be happy to allow a health minister to resign over a dispute about whether they would authorise the use of hydroxychloroquine. That is now recommended in Brazil for moderate and mild cases, not just severe cases despite the fact the WHO say, in fact, it is harmful. So this is an extraordinary situation where the main federal government is pushing in one direction and it's local governors who are essentially trying to put the lockdowns in place that have shown around the rest of the world to be successful, Richard. But is the, is the curve flattening? No, it's on its way up. I mean, there's no doubt about that right now, according to most uh, of the studies being seen certainly the number of new cases reported every day in the last 24-hour period was 11,000. We've seen it about four or five days earlier be about 20,000 a day. But that isn't necessarily a reflection of the spread of the disease being lower. It's about how many numbers are being tested, how that data is collected. Different states in Brazil count positive tests or suspected COVID uh, cases as part of their particular figure. So it's a mishmash of numbers, not very universal at all. And above all of that, too, is the extraordinary politics of all of this, because you essentially have a political war between a federal presidential government that says, don't take this as seriously, get back to work, the economy is the most important thing, and local governors who say we need to protect lives because people are dying around us. That's fundamentally where the problem is in the next two weeks. You can't stop nature, you can't stop the virus, you can't stop the peak coming. What you can possibly alter is how damaging it is, and the debate really here in Brazil is, is the economy more important than people? Is it health or wealth, Richard? And it's a debate that has been had in many countries, but seems like it's on the forefront in Brazil. Nick Payton Walsh, thank you. A junior minister in the UK government has resigned in protest over the actions of Dominic Cummings as the Prime Minister's chief advisor. On Monday, Cummings said he did, he did not regret travelling more than 400 kilometres out of London and back when the country was under a strict lockdown. The Prime Minister has defended his advisor's action. 
The markets, strong gains expected with the blue chips likely to outperform. You can see the numbers there up to over, uh, over 25,000, if that is true. The Nasdaq was the best gainer last week of 3.5%, 4% for the year. VIX volatility down. European stocks gaining as more countries lift restrictions on movement and commerce. The New York Stock Exchange is opening in the next few minutes. John Tuttle is the vice chairman. He joins me, John Tuttle, via Skype. John Tuttle, <coughs> thank you, first of all. Congratulations on, on opening um, the market in some shape or form. I do wonder why you chose these particular people, the floor traders, uh, rather than, say, the market makers who are supposedly the backbone, if you like, of the unique specialist med, uh, version of the New York Stock Exchange. Well, great to be with you, Richard. And today is an important day, not only for the New York Stock Exchange and the markets, but also an important symbol of America and hopefully the world uh, recovering from this uh, pandemic that, that has closed our trading floor for over two months. And so we've been working very closely with federal, state, and local officials, with public health experts, and others to, to come up with a plan to methodically and thoughtfully open up, uh, reopen the trading floor uh, at our iconic 11 Wall Street building. And you identified one of the constituencies down there. That's the floor brokers. That's who will be coming back into our building today at a much uh, limited capacity. So 25% of the typical population on the trading floor will be down there today. Our designated market makers who represent uh, a lot of our listed companies will continue to operate remotely. But the reason we brought those floor brokers back is because they represent the large institutional investors, the asset managers out there, and many of them are small to medium-sized businesses. While we have large investment banks down there, we have these smaller firms that their presence helps save investors, and again, pension funds or even individuals saving for the retirement millions of dollars by being on our trading floor. So we're pleased to welcome them back in a limited capacity. And, uh, and, 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 and today is a very important symbol for getting back to normal. I was looking at the numbers. The market has gone up the best part of 25% since the floor closed. I guess, uh, I mean, what, so assuming this goes well, when do you anticipate taking the next step another tranche of either brokers, traders, or DMMs coming back? It's a really good question. And well, first of all, our workforce continues to work remote. Uh, so they're not back in the building because we want to make sure that that group on the trading floor is protected and we minimize as much risk as possible. We're closely monitoring events. And when the time is right, we'll begin phase two of our reopening plan. But think about how much has changed over the past two months from when we decided out of an abundance of caution to proactively and temporarily close the trading floor. You know, it's tough to predict what the future would look like, but we're taking the first step today with the phase reopening of our iconic 11 Wall Street floor. I'm going to ask you the question that I asked you when you closed. You will reopen the floor. I mean, your opening is in a limited capacity. Is the, and we've just got a minute left of this, John, because I want to make sure I catch the opening bell. You're still committed to the floor as the centerpiece of Wall Street. Absolutely. And that floor results in superior savings, not only for our listed companies, but investors. It's also an important symbol of the markets and free enterprise. And uh, that floor will be open. And I hope our next interview is in person down there. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. 
very much being jostled and moved around on the floor. Thank you. John Tuttle, I hope everything goes well today with the opening of the Thanks. New York Stock Exchange. Uh, thank you. Getting it, being, making sure we're all on time, because the one thing we don't want to miss today is the opening of the floor. Limited in nature, maybe not quite as exciting as otherwise. Uh, the market is likely to rally very strongly at the open. Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, is opening uh, the floor in just about three minutes from now. This is first move, uh, Richard Quest. There is plenty more. It is a historic day, in a sense, because of the symbolism of what it says, that we will get back to work. And the market will rally, as you can see on the screen, 25% since the floor closed. This is first move. Well, there you have it. Governor Cuomo ringing the opening bell uh, with mask. That's Stacey Cunningham, the president of the exchange, the CEO. Virtual high fives. We had thought that, <coughs> excuse me, we had thought it was going to be a virtual ringing from Albany, but no, there he was. And the familiar signs of the New York Stock Exchange the floor, but a very different floor. 25% or less of the people that are there. It is a case of the floor brokers, the small brokers who deal with a lot of institutional business. Um, as I can see the pictures going around there, GTS, they are the market makers. So the, you're looking at the GTS market makers and Citadel, who are market makers, the, the, the trading posts there. They will not be back yet. It will be some time. Which leads me to assume that actually the number of people on the floor will be less. Since the market makers aren't there, then most will be crowded round those floor brokers and companies that have floor trading presence. The market is up 2.5% at the open. That was expected. Um, two reasons, obviously. You've got a reopening that seems to be successfully going well. And you've got the prospect of a vaccine. I think it's the reopening that's pushing this market a little bit higher. We've had vaccines on, vaccines off. Whatever it is, risk on at the moment. And stocks are up across the board. Another interesting thing is energy stocks. They will also be higher um, because of, of the way things are trading. Energy stocks are amongst the biggest gainers as oil consumption picks up. It's, it, it's perverse. Consumption is picking up and therefore the, the way the market is moving, people seem to like all what's going on. Hopes for a vaccine helping boost sentiment. Uh, shares in the in Novavax are posting double digit gains as it's begun first stage human trials. They're at more than a thousand percent year to date. The US drug maker giant Merck is also working on vaccines. Clinical studies are expected later this month. Scores of candidates are being studied. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen reports.
This is now the 10th team that's in human clinical trials trying out their experimental COVID vaccines. So let's take a look at these numbers worldwide. So 10 worldwide, four of them are in the U.S. Novavax is the fourth. That's the recent addition. And then there's five in China and there's one in the United Kingdom. In addition, there are 114 teams worldwide that are in what's called preclinical stages. In other words, they're in the lab or they're working with animals, but they have not yet started human clinical trials. So what human clinical trials mean is that you try it out first on a small number to make sure that it's safe and to make sure you're getting the immune response that you're looking for. And then you move up to larger numbers. Eventually, you test out the vaccine in thousands or tens of thousands of people. You try it out against people who are not getting vaccinated. Is there a different our difference? Are vaccinated people getting COVID less often? So Novavax is the fourth in the United States. They are not quite as far ahead as some of the other ones, but it's really a matter of time to see who finishes first and more importantly, who has a safe and effective vaccine. Elizabeth Kern reporting. Now, the United States says China was, there was a lack of transparency and didn't tell the world how bad things were and that China could have stopped the coronavirus pandemic at its borders. China says the U.S. is just blaming them uh, for its own incompetence in the way it's handled the pandemic. And if you look at the way China has, the numbers are well down and the economy is fully open. President Trump says he's no longer speaking to President Xi. He's not calling him at the moment. And an alliance that was already fragile seems to be at breaking point. The economy of China is recovering. The economy of the United States is going downhill. The former U.S. ambassador to China, Max Marcus, joins me now. Uh, ambassador, always good to see you. Would you, you say, as some have said, that the relationship between the two is now at its worst level in decades? Well, it's certainly at its worst level in the last 10 years, maybe two or three decades. It's, it's, it's bad. And there actions we see in the last several days that make things worse. For example, uh, the, the People's Congress in China passing the national security law, which basically hastens the day when China is going to take over Hong Kong. Uh, sometimes we all say that, well, you know, words are bad, but actions are even, you know, if they're in the wrong way, are even worse. This is deeds. This is not words. The action that China has taken with respect to Hong Kong. So that makes it much worse. Okay. I'm not I'm not sure the phase one trade deal is going to go through right now. It's It's we're in a very bad spot. Is, is the U.S. accusation against China fundamentally, let's not quibble around the edges, but is it fundamentally justified when the U.S. says China could have done more to be more transparent and to stop the virus at its borders? I think China could have been more transparent. Um, I don't think the virus began in a lab, as some of the U.S. have said, but uh, but it did begin clearly in China. And I think there was a bit of a cover-up. Partly that's the bureaucracy in China. When you spend time in China, you realize that China is very, is very, bureaucrat very bureaucratic. Second, um, the leaders in Wuhan, in Hubei province, don't want to tell their leaders up in Beijing bad news. But sure, China did cover up initially. And they finally realized how bad this was, and they locked down Hubei, locked down Wuhan, and did a pretty good job stopping it. But there was initial cover-up, no question. And so you just alluded, well, you, you said, all right, that you feared for the China trade deal. Well, the first bit 
of the China-US trade deal was window dressing to a large extent. The second bit they came along with, and many of us believed, actually, it really wasn't that much different. Because the sanctions and the tariffs, the majority of them are still in place, aren't they? And surely nothing really improves until they, the US tariffs against China, are removed, which is highly unlikely in an election year, do you think? I agree with that. Um, election year, um, people do crazy things. They say crazy things. They say things to, to get reelected. And, uh, and clearly, uh, uh, rhetoric in D.C. today, among those who uh, in the Congress want to get reelected, is to bash China. I mean, you saw that 57-page memo, for example. Now, the real danger here is that uh, some in Beijing think, well, that's not only politics. Then maybe that's going to be the situation we, the Chinese, face um, after the election. And so it's very important, I think, for right. United States leaders who are criticizing China, and and, and the, much of the criticism is, is legitimate, to be kind of careful, because if it goes too far, it's going to cause even excessive nationalism in China, then whoever's elected president right. is going to have a harder time putting things back together again. Ambassador, um, when you look at it all, from the beauty of Montana, which is one of the most gorgeous parts of the world, and some arguably might say somewhat remote, but you are living in a truly beautiful part of the United States. Rural, well, different. You. How does it all look? This, this battle between these two behemoths, does it seem like there is a potential to reach ground, or is China going to be the whipping boy for Donald Trump's re-election campaign? I think probably uh, China will be the whipping boy, not just for uh, Donald Trump's campaign, but you'll see a lot of Democrats of China too. They don't want to let Trump get too far ahead of them. The real danger is this. We are the two largest countries in the world, U.S. and China, and neither country is going anyplace. We have to figure out a way to work together. That's what this all comes down to. Sure, there's going to be competition, There'll be trade between our companies, countries. There'll be differences. We have to go work harder to figure out ways to deal with each other. That means we keep our feet on the ground, clear-eyed, level-headed. But we're not going anywhere. China's not going anywhere. So let's figure out a way to work together. <laughs> Ambassador, it is always a treat. And we're, we're very grateful that you've given us time uh, to get the inside. Thank you, Thank sir. You. No. Thank you. Let's, get, let's go to... Asia. The casino magnate Stanley Ho has died at the age of 98. Extremely well known, much loved. He was the king of, Mac of Macau, who turned it into one of the world's largest and most lavish casino resorts. CNN's Christy Lustadt reports. He was one of Hong Kong's original tycoons and one of Asia's richest men. But Stanley Ho made his fortune on the nearby enclave of Macau, the only place in China where casinos are legal. For four decades, Ho held the only gaming concession in the territory. The man who came to be known as the godfather of gambling always said he never indulged himself. I know nothing of gambling. I still don't gamble. I've got this franchise because it was a challenge for me. And he says he fought to keep a clean image in what some consider a murky business. Some people still think that Sandy Ho uh, knows too many triads and uh, are connected with the triads. This is very unfair, a real misconception. 
But he was a flamboyant man who loved ballroom dancing. And not only did his casino monopoly make him a very rich man, today the people of Macau more or less live off the rattle of roulette wheels and the clinking of chips from the empire he founded. Ho's substantial influence around Asia was underlined when he took his seat on the political advisory body to China, bringing him close to key figures in Beijing. In 2002, Macau opened its casino industry to foreign competition, and big rollers such as Wynn Resorts and the Las Vegas Sands entered the market. At the same time, China eased travel restrictions, and tourists headed straight for the casinos just over the border. This was the start of a decade of explosive growth that would see Macau's gaming scene become many times the size of the Las Vegas Strip. Ho's fortunes grew as well, and by 2008, Forbes estimated his net worth at $9 billion. But that wealth would threaten to tear his family apart. Ho was famously polygamous, having 17 children with four women. In 2009, he suffered a fall and underwent brain surgery. Frail and in poor health, he stepped back from running his business, and members of his family engaged in a very public battle for his fortune. A resolution came two years later, with Ho giving up nearly his entire stake in the gambling empire he built, divided among his family. He would also live to witness a reversal of fortune in Macau, as a corruption crackdown and slowing growth in China hit gaming revenue hard. But despite the uncertainty ahead, Stanley Ho's legacy endures. Macau itself, and how far it has come, remains a testament to his vision and his life's work. Chrissy Lee Stout reporting on the life and times of Stanley Ho. In a moment after the break, staycations are likely to be all the rage this year. If for no other reason than many people are simply frightened, well, not scared maybe, but concerned at the health risks of flying by air. We'll talk about it after the break. It is noticeable. Here I am in the lounge and the air conditioning is off and it is already starting to get hot. All of which tells me that it's summer is round the corner and it is time to start thinking about where one might go on vacation, holidays and the like. Europe is ready for a break, said one top European official. Well, as it gets underway, we're looking at one barometer. We're freak each week here on First Move, we're going to be looking at this barometer. It's the TSA numbers. The, the U.S. Uh, sort of airport security people, and they, they, they monitor the number of people they screen every day. So between Thursday and Monday, roughly 1.5 million people were screened. That sounds a lot, but it's a fraction. It's around 10 to 12 percent of the number of people screened last year. And you can see, if you look at the chart, just how the fall-off happened in terms of the number of people screened and how much it literally fell off a cliff. Um, so you've got the numbers. Look at March the 1st. You're up to 2 million a day. Now you get down to where just in the tens of thousands in sort of mid-April. But look at the back end of this chart and it's inching up. Still a long way to go. Before we go, we'll continue to watch all of this. Travel operators are under no illusions about the difficulties that they face. Airlines are saying that things won't get back to normal, or to, i.e. back to where they were, until 2022, 2023. As for the hotel builders, well, Trivago's CEO spoke to me on Quest Business last night, where he put it clearly. 
things were not going to return quickly and when they did, trust was going to be the issue. This year will, will not be about uh, making money um, and it, it will obviously be about um, losing as uh, less as possible. But the key thing this year will be to step by step rebuild the confidence of travelers into traveling. Um, as I said, first domestically and then in bigger, bigger steps um, as travel is becoming safer. And then to have some kind of recovery um, of the overall activity for next year. This year, the activity will be very low, um, almost in any possible scenario. Right. Now, I, I, you know, we've done numerous looks at how hotels can rebuild that trust. Everything from, you know, letting, I mean, guests will say we don't want room service or we don't want our room serviced. But what do you think will be the touchstone for rebuilding travel. There'll be lots of hotels that'll make lots of pretty noises, but what will be the evidence that will make people feel better? I mean, it, it might sound simple, but I do think that, um, that, that trips where everybody's coming back healthy will um, help to rebuild the confidence. And that's why we do think that really step-by-step step, uh, getting more and more out of your comfort zone will be important. Um, Apartments are considered by a lot of people as the safest um, accommodation type. Then the next one, smaller hotels um, with not full occupancy and, and big distance, uh, no common areas. And then you will really go um, step by step back to something that, that will be not normal, but would be closer to normal. Now, the travel and tourism we'll be looking at in much more detail tonight on Quest Means Business. It is our travel and tourism special. Um, we'll be talking about that. I'll be speaking to top airlines, hotels and CEOs, as well as tourism ministers from some of the countries that rely on visitors the most. It's tonight. It's 8 p.m. in London, 9 p.m. across Central and Eastern Europe. Coming up in a moment, we're going to be live on the floor of the exchange. Jonathan Corpina will be with me to tell me how life is different is back on the floor of the exchange and what's it like. To those markets that are now open and doing business, let's see how we progressed. It was about 2.4% up when we opened. Look at the markets now and you'll get an idea. Rally is underway. It's holding. It's not growing. It is holding. The floor closed, the stock market floor closed on March the 23rd, when the Dow since then has risen by more than 25%. The Nasdaq is up by nearly a third, and it's only 3.5% from its all-time highs. Shares of Novavax are rallying 16%. It's hoping to get stocks of its, of its early-stage testing of the COVID-19 vaccine. Jonathan Corpina is with me, Senior Managing Partner at Meridian Equity Partners, back on the floor of the exchange. Um, how it is different, explain how different. Uh, you know, everything, every aspect has been different, right? Starting from the commute coming in today with uh, not taking my regular train in and driving in and walking down Wall Street with, with a lot less people on there. And then the process and procedure getting in the building, screening, temperature taking, and then walking into this environment here. Clearly, there's less people here today that's mandated by the building and by uh, in, in accordance with Governor Cuomo and his plans. 
We've got some areas that have plexiglassed off in between partitions. Social distancing is in effect here. Um, I know on our trading desk, normally I have about 15 people. We're down to six, um, spread out six feet apart. So all those aspects make this environment different. But the good news is that we are here. We're back again. Systems are working great. Order flow continues to come in. And on a symbolic level, this shows America and the globe that we are moving forward, we're moving in the right direction, we are starting to get back to what our new normal will be. That symbolism is very significant, Jonathan, because obviously for the last eight weeks you've managed to trade at home. So uh, besides the symbolism, quantify for me if you can or explain for me, why is it important that you and your six colleagues are there when you can trade quite happily, the orders can come in and you can trade them out quite happily on screen. Right, so the, the floor community provides about 10% of the average daily volume to our overall markets. That's a significant amount of liquidity. And we've seen over this time with the NYSE closed that that volume, not in the markets, has added to volatility. Spreads are getting wider, prices are getting uh, volatile, and that affects negatively the end customer. And who is that end customer? It's the 401k holder. It's the fireman's pension plan. It's the Main Street people who have been disadvantaged, disadvantaged, unfortunately, by the floor brokers not being on the floor at this time. But we're back here now. This volume and this liquidity is going to come back. Spreads are going to tighten. We're going to continue to bring back our price discovery process that we do on the openings and the close and multiple times right. throughout the day of getting customers the best price. Jonathan, even with mask, you have no idea how good it is for us to see you on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, back where you rightly belong. Good to see you, sir. Very nice to see you, and can't wait to see you down here too soon. We'll be there. Thank you. And that is our report Thank you. on First Move today. I'm Richard Creston for Julia, uh, who's having a well-earned break. I hope I've got us from beginning to end in one piece, roughly. But I will be back to do some more damage on Questme's business, which of course is at three o'clock Eastern. We'll have the closing bell at the end of that. Otherwise, between now and then, whatever you're up to, I hope it's profitable. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.